0: to the dog and duck show. My name is Warren Maynard. I am the dog. My co-host Mark Schmore is out of the picture today. Uh, He will be returning I'm sure with us next week but excited to have friend, guest uh, host, NFL analyst Zach Whitlow with us for today. Zach good to see you my friend. How are you
1: doing? Doing very well. It's been a while but I'm very excited to be back with you today.
0: We always appreciate your sports insights, and it's good to have you back. Uh, Zach was uh, on staff with me for several years in Seattle. Now he lives on the other side of the country in Virginia, so he can kind of give us a little bit more of a national perspective. But before we get into uh, some of the bigger picture stuff, let's talk a little dog and duck, some news and notes for the Huskies. Uh, They are back into spring football. Uh, so that's uh, that's up and running now. I think they're about four or five practices in uh, to uh, their spring football season. And one thing that they're doing this year that would have never happened in the Chris Peterson era, and, and that is they they've opened up a number of practices for fans and media to attend. Chris kind of had a, a, a much more, you know, protective uh, perspective on how to run his practices? I think Jimmy Lake realizes that UW needs to get some momentum, needs to get some more fan engagement. Uh, there's a, there's been a little bit of a sense of negativity within the program, with some coaches leaving, with players departing. Um, so I think this is a healthy step for UW, and uh, and and they're going to be you know they're going to be doing the practices in person the next few Saturdays, they'll be having uh, their, their practices uh, kind of reported on with uh, Tony Castricone. And then they've got their spring game coming up uh, for Saturday in May. And uh, a lot of excitement around trying to really get uh, a lot of fan support. So if you're a Husky fan, uh, I encourage you to go out to the spring game uh, for Saturday in May. Should be a beautiful day and a lot of fun uh but in addition to that ongoing storyline of the transfer portal continues this time in the huskies favor with um impact transfer uh, michigan wide receiver giles jackson uh jackson is a a speedster he was a, a kick returner and a wide receiver for the university of michigan four-star coming out of high school um, for his career, he's got 24 catches and 309 yards uh, for a touchdown, which uh, doesn't sound all that impressive. But when you look at the statistics of the wide receivers on the Husky roster already, that automatically puts him really near the top in terms of most experienced wide receivers on the roster. But this guy is an explosive player. He's got two touchdowns of over 95 yards in his college career already. And uh, boy, what an exciting thing it's going to be if he gets into the game and makes something happen against the University of Michigan when we're in Ann Arbor this September. So big pickup for the dogs, a lot of reason for optimism in spite of uh, a number of, Players transferring out. The Huskies are still returning an experienced roster of 19 of the 22 starters going into the next season. So, a lot of positive things to focus on. And we'll probably do a full Husky football rundown. Um, and then uh, we'll have to, of course, do one for the Ducks as well sometime in the next few weeks. So, be looking forward to that. Uh, with Husky basketball, Uh, The problems just continue. There's not a lot of enthusiasm there. We'll get to them in a little bit. Uh, But the Lady Dogs uh, are doing well. The the softball, volleyball, tennis, and crew are all uh, having some real good success right now. So that's a little bit of the news and notes with the Dogs. Uh, I'm not going to report much on the Ducks, although I will say that uh, Oregon Duck, C.J. Verdell, running back, Uh, presumed starter he has announced that his goal is to rush for over 2,000 yards this season and for the team to make the college football playoffs so a lot of optimism coming out of the Oregon Duck camp this spring as well Uh, Zach any thoughts about just what you're seeing here and about uh, college football teams in general as their spring uh, trainings are taking place and uh you know, where, where's the enthusiasm? Maybe where's a little bit of, uh, you know, fear or pessimism that you're picking up on a national level?
1: I think that, you know, we're in an interesting time because really since the playoffs began, I mean, it really has been dominated by Clemson and Alabama, you know, Oklahoma, Ohio State, they've been in there, but really this era has really been Bama and Clemson. So Clemson obviously now, having replaced Trevor Lawrence, that'll be very interesting. Now Dabo has shown that um he didn't go immediately, you know, from Deshaun to Trevor. He had the year in between with Kelly Bryant and they still made the playoffs, but I don't know if they ever really were considered as lethal as they were when they had Lawrence. So I wonder if that's a if this is maybe a a minor step back year for Clemson. Alabama, it just seems like it does not matter what happens to them. They just seem to always, you know, find their way yeah. into the mix. Um, but a team, a couple of teams that I think I'm very interested in um, Oklahoma really mm-hmm. impressed me last year. And the reason is that yeah. we're so used to seeing Lincoln Riley and the work he does with quarterbacks, Murray, uh, uh, Baker. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we see the work he's done with those guys. But last year was one of the very first times in in my recent memory that I can remember, OU had a defense. And they're bringing back starters from that defense. So I look at Oklahoma, Spencer Radler, he's another one of those guys that Mm. progressively got better um, as the season went along. I think OU, if they can get back to that level that they played defensively, I think OU to me is really a lethal threat Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it actually really take it all next year. And that would kind of, again, it, I mean, OU is a, is a traditional powerhouse, but like I said, we've really been seeing just kind of like the Clemson Bama dominance. So that's the team I think could actually kind of maybe snoop swoop in and be, you know, the LSU of a few years ago that just kind of finally breaks up the party a little bit, but OU- yeah, you, guys- you know, that's, an,
0: that's an interesting take. Cause I think, you know, when you look at the the incredible run that they've had with their quarterbacks, with Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, Jalen Hurts, Spencer Rattler to me is a clear notch below uh, a couple of those guys. But I think when you look at the entirety of their team, they may be better positioned this year to really break into that top two you know, to make it to the finals. If, if they can make it to the finals, even if they don't win it, that's a major step forward, uh, which just goes to show how difficult that is. But yeah, you're right. I mean, even though Rattler, in my opinion, at, at least what he's proven thus far, he's not on that same level as a Murray or a Mayfield. But uh, they could they could. Be-
1: the the team that, that really breaks through this year. Yeah, and I think you said it, you hit the nail on the head in that like it kind of seemed like, you know, when 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 Mayfield got there, he had, you know, some kind of established credibility even when he got there. Murray, he had established credibility. Hertz definitely had established credibility being at Alabama. Right. Yeah. So all of those guys, they it wasn't this, they all kind of had some kind of established credibility Rattler didn't necessarily have that. And I think it's because, like you said, I don't think talent-wise, he is as good as those three. But I think in a in a weird way, because he's not as talented, <clears throat> it kind of forced Coach Riley to have to look. Okay, I can't just say, Well, I've got, you know, Spencer Rattler. I, I've got in a lot of times when you have the best quarterback, I mean, yeah, you could just be a lot can happen when you do that. But he didn't have that. So then he had to look big picture. And like I said, this is one of the rare occasions where I really saw Oklahoma's defense really step up and consistently play well. And so, like you said, I think that they are better positioned as a whole to really be a threat to win the whole thing, or even just like you said, just get to the championship.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. You know, um, it's funny. I was, I was talking with with Mark about this a few weeks ago and we were talking about the Seahawks and, and I kind of, I actually kind of used this term uh, that You know, there's, there's, in my opinion, there's kind of a holy trinity when it comes to having a great program for uh, an NFL team. And in my opinion, that's the quarterback, the head coach, and the general manager. You know, so the, the Seahawks have Russell Wilson, Pete Carroll, John Schneider. Aside from perhaps Brady and Belichick, you know, there's there's not many teams that can compare to that that trio in in the nfl with with college football you know what would you say that 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 trinity is i think it's the quarterback maybe it's the the head coach or the offensive coordinator you know whoever that person is that can maximize the quarterback and then you know what would that third component be would it be a defensive coordinator like i say a Brent Venables
1: uh, or is it something else? I think a defensive coordinator, another key piece that I think maybe doesn't get recognized as much is that I know at least from my experiences when I was at ETBU, you know, like for our football program, our head coach would go on like recruiting trips and whatnot, but they also usually had somebody specifically that was in charge of recruiting. And so, and I mean, you know better than anyone in college it, it's all about recruiting. the coaches. It just comes down to recruiting. Can you mm-hmm. convince this guy that you want to choose my program? That, that ultimately is what it comes down to. Um, so I think that's now again, sometimes the head coach is the main recruit, like in Alabama, mm-hmm. Nick Saban is a, is a pretty sufficient, you know, recruit, yeah. you know, yeah. but so I know some schools have other like specific people that are like specifically in charge of being the head recruiters. Um, in that aspect. But, um, but I think that definitely the head coach and especially, yeah, I think now more so, just the way that we're seeing offenses um, go in, the, in college, I do think definitely, if you can surround yourself with the right staff, um, I think maybe a little more in college basketball, especially when you're if, you're, if you haven't been a head coach before, mm-hmm. being able to find good wisdom to be able to put in your staff as well definitely helps. Because like you said, it's, it's about creating a program right. that I can consistently get people to want to attend. Um, So that's definitely – yeah, I think that's a pretty good, accurate um, quarterback, head coach. And I'd say, yeah, probably a defensive coordinator or just really just whoever the second-hand man is. Because Nick Saban for forever, he had Kirby Smart too. You know, like everybody – all the head coaches – Sweeney has Venables. All the head coaches kind of have a second-hand man. Orgeron a few years ago had Joe Mm -hmm. Brady. So it's like, yeah, you definitely need to have that second-hand man as well. So I think that's kind of, and again, sometimes it's the defensive, sometimes the offensive, but I definitely think, yeah, you're going to need all of those if you want a consistently good program.
0: By the way, you mentioned Ed Orgeron. Have you happened to uh, watch any episodes of Young Rock?
1: (laughs) I've seen, I saw the first one. I saw a couple of highlights. Um, uh, uh, So I haven't seen it consistently, but I, I saw the first episode. The character of
0: Ed Orgeron is a recurring character on the show, and uh, it's it's pretty hilarious. I didn't
1: know he was at Miami. I didn't know he was at Miami when Barack was there. (laughs) Well, and not to to give
0: away any spoilers, but I didn't realize that uh, a part of that team that Dwayne Johnson was on was Mario Cristobal, the head coach of the Oregon Ducks, and apparently... Ball was responsible for uh, a season ending injury to uh, Dwayne Johnson in his freshman year. So yeah, pretty, pretty interesting stuff. Well, let's, let's change gears. You mentioned, you mentioned college basketball. Let's talk a little bit about March Madness. The dog and duck show was off last week. So we didn't get a chance to talk about uh, the final four or the championship game, but you know, if you if you looked at the headline of this March Madness uh, playoff season and you just read one seed Baylor defeats one seed Gonzaga 86 to 70, just assume, hey, there's nothing to see here, right? But that would be a massive uh, mistake because this was an incredible tournament filled with uh, amazing performances and one of if not the best college basketball games of all time so give me your breakdown on what you saw in this tournament and then I'm gonna hit you up for a few uh, highlights and and um, you know superlatives of you know what what was the best from this this past season's
1: uh, you know, Final Four and March Madness tournament. Well, I'll say first of all, just as a college basketball fan, just having the tournament this year was just amazing. Even yeah. if it had to all be in Indianapolis, even if they didn't have as many fans we get, it, it was different. All that is true. Just being able to have March Madness, it just it felt like things were somewhat getting back to normal, you know, it was just awesome just in general. But I'll start just with the championship game. Um, first of all, I want to say I am a huge Mark Few fan. I love mm-hmm. what he has built at Gonzaga. I think teams have gotten now to where they don't even call him anymore because they know he's not leaving Gonzaga. Mm-hmm. Um, so what he's been able to build there has just been amazing. And the fact that, you know, this is their second national championship game appearance in four years, and for all intents and purposes, they could have made the tournament championship last year, too, for all intents and purposes. Um they were incredibly dominant through the whole season. Mm -hmm. So I want to start to say, I don't think that that should be lost. They had an amazing season. They didn't cash in at the end and whatnot. But I do think in the bigger picture, though, I read an article and the title of the article, I loved it so much. It was describing the game. And the title of it was Hiding in Plain Sight. And that's what Mm -hmm. Baylor was. But Mm -hmm. if you remember a few months ago when we were reviewing the Super Bowl, I actually did remember mentioning in that, you know, kind of how my focus goes now to college basketball. And I mentioned then that, yeah, I really think Baylor could win it all this year. Mm The thing was shortly thereafter though, they had like a three week pause because of COVID. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you take three weeks off and then they start back up and they have basically a week of games and then they have the big 12 tournament and then the tournament. And so the whole time I was like, I mean, Can they play themselves back into the form that they were before the COVID Mm -hmm. pause? And to answer the question, yes, they did. Um, It was literally from the opening tip. Baylor just, I think Gonzaga, that was the first time all season they had met a team with just that physicality and that athleticism. Baylor was unique in that. I don't necessarily know if they Butler was the most outstanding player, but I don't know if looking at their team, I find like necessarily like this, great generational player i don't see Mm. that but what they had was a lot of very good experienced players yeah that knew each other and knew how to win and so i think because they had that that was what i think helped them be able to just just mop the floor with gonzaga but all in all i thought it was just an amazing tournament and you know hey this was rare that the top two teams generally regarded as the top two teams throughout the whole season actually got to the championship so for me, I feel like we definitely got a definitive champion. We felt like mm-hmm. Baylor and Gonzaga were the two best. They were supposed to play in December, and then COVID canceled that. And But we got the two best teams, in my opinion. They play each other, and Baylor just – they had their way, and it was like, – it wasn't even really close. So, um, But Baylor was just as dominant as Gonzaga. They just didn't have a zero in the loss column – but very impressive. Hats off to Scott Drew Mm -hmm. and to all of my Baylor alum friends It is now, their life is now complete. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. Well,
0: I don't think that there's any doubt that the team that overachieved above and beyond expectations was UCLA. And by extension, the Pac-12 uh, outperformed oh, man. everybody's expectations, aside from maybe good old Bill Walton, and, uh, and and they they gave Gonzaga the undefeated number, undisputed number one team in the nation. They gave them a run for their money that I think you know will be remembered for decades. Tell me a little bit about what that game was like for you watching it uh you know as it as it
1: unfolded yeah UCLA I mean to back up for those don't know UCLA was one of the final teams to even get into the field that's right they had they they had to play in and it's not and uh guess who they had to play in that first game they had to play this team called Michigan State you know (laughs) um and so they have to start this tournament off to playing Michigan State to even get into the field. Mm-hmm. And so then they they put, beat Michigan State in a thrill in an overtime thriller. And then they get in. Um, they play a very underrated BYU team. But the team that took Gonzaga to the limit in the West Coast Championship, they beat them. And then now, okay, it's not their fault, but Texas got upset by Abilene Christian. You can only play who's in front of you, but hey, they played Abilene Christian and they won. Um, but then they get to the yeah. Sweet 16, and that's where. I will say, like you said, first off, the Pac-12 committee, national media, y'all gonna learn how to stay awake, okay? Because I, as a guy who actually used to live on the West Coast and has a little bit more of a vested interest in the Pac-12, I literally saw all season long the highest I would see a Pac-12 team is get like 16 in the top 25. It would be like a Southern Cal or an Oregon or Colorado or something, and I'm just sitting there. I'm like, what? am I the only one noticing they had so many good teams and that was before Oregon state even snuck into the back door, you know? And so it's like, I remember just watching and thinking to myself, am I, am am I going mad? Am I the only one who notices they have a ton of really good teams out there. Mm. And so, like you said, the PAC 12, absolutely way over exceeded now, again, other than me and Bill Walton, we were the only two that really said, Okay, guys, y'all don't realize they've actually got some really good teams. Luca Garza, the national player of the year, Oregon took them out in the second round as well. Right. Um, By USC the way, Zach. That, um,
0: uh, so you know, you're talking well in the tournament. The the Huskies actually, as it turned out, they ended up finishing with the eighth most the eighth strongest schedule in all of college basketball because they yeah. had to play all of those teams. So, yeah, to your point, I don't think anybody gave the Pac-12
1: nearly enough credit coming in. I'm telling you, it's because nobody to stay up that late if they don't live on the way. <laughs> that's that's right. my theory. But that's anyway, to, to get back to the initial question about Gonzaga and UCLA, that was such an amazing game. The re- One of the things I really liked about watching that game, and then I liked watching about Gonzaga and Baylor is sometimes in college, This is the Steph Curry factor in that I think sometimes everybody just wants to be Steph Curry. So they just want to dribble, dribble, take a shot with like 18 seconds and just jack up threes all game. But what I liked about watching Gonzaga and UCLA and Gonzaga-Baylor is these were two incredibly well-coached teams that said, "Okay, Mm -hmm. we're going to actually execute our offense. Mm -hmm. And both teams, Gonzaga and UCLA, ended up shooting over 50 percent for for the game, not um, just jacking up threes all game long. That was one thing that for me as a fan made it very enjoyable. But man, just watching how UCLA, I it, every time it seemed like Gonzaga was finally like, okay, we've got, you know, yeah. a five-point lead, I'm just like, you're gonna, yeah. it ain't yeah. over. Okay, they're not going away. But um obviously the end of the, the end and overtime, Juzang, who by the way, you talk about draft stocks going up. Big time. <laughs> oh. Big time. And Juzang's draft stock went way up. I've been paying attention to UCLA, but Juzang we saw him the tournament, I did not see that guy all season. That's what I was wanting to see all season, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, he stepped up in a big way in the tournament. Um, and so when he gets down there and scores, you know, first off, my heart is like, oh, how did he do that? You know? So we're tied and it's, it's one of those weird things because there's so many different <clears throat> coaching strategies you can have in that situation. You know, if you obviously don't want to foul, but if your suds in that situation, really, you only, I think there was only, what, like four seconds left. They didn't ke- take a timeout, so they didn't try to advance or anything. So you're just getting it up, and you know if your suds from half court, you have to heave that thing up. And and in that situation, it's okay because if you miss it, we're going to double overtime. If you make it, you're a hero. And when he made it, I literally, I literally fell off of my couch just like <laughs> – because I'm in shock from the Juzang make. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, double overtime. I could go for five more minutes. And then Suggs makes that shot. And it was, it was, I think it was the second best college basketball game I'd ever witnessed. Mm. My personal favorite would still have to be North Carolina and Villanova in the championship game in 2016, because one, it was in Texas. Um, and two, it was for the championship and Jenkins hit the buzzer beater um, to win the title. Yes. But that that was just an amazing college basketball it was one of those i wish both of them could have won you didn't want to really see a loser in that but it was such an amazing game
0: absolutely absolutely you know like you said it was like as the game was kind of going on you kind of it kind of felt like everybody would would take a little bit of a a sigh and go okay gonzaga's got this but then you ucla would come right back and you know, over and over and over again, they are like, well, good job, you UCLA, you did your best. And then, nope, they're back right at it. And if it were not for uh, really a miraculous shot, which we'll talk about in just a second, you know, who knows what would have happened if it had gone to a second overtime. So let's talk a little, talk a little bit about some of our superlatives. Uh, Zach, what would you say, What was your what was the one shining moment for you like that that one moment that one play that really captured you in this this most recent tournament
1: um so it is my favorite and least favorite moment of the tournament and it would have to be the oral roberts golden eagles it's my least favorite in that i picked ohio state to make the final four so thanks a lot coach mills um but max amos um he actually was the leading scorer in division one this year and i knew about that but the one thing that's always tricky with some of those um, lower seed teams is a lot of times they have like a, an elite player like that. But when you're going up against a more superior, talented team, you're going to need more than that one elite player. Oral Roberts had that. And the fact that right. they beat Ohio State and then they beat Florida, to become only the second 15 seed in tournament history to get to the Sweet 16. Again, I'm thinking, mm-hmm. OK, just like I said earlier, it's like what a nice cute little story it's been for all right and then they took Arkansas to the limit and so it's just like to me that's really the essence of March Madness is you get to see teams who up until then nobody had ever heard of Oral Roberts nobody probably even knows where Oral Roberts is you know nobody had ever heard of these guys but to be able to see this team of discipline you know talented kids get a shot on a national scale to actually show people just how good they were. For me, the team that I think captured me the most would have to be Oral Roberts um, and the way that they made a run to the Sweet 16 and almost got to the Elite Eight.
0: Absolutely, that was beautiful. You know, and I mean, I think to me, uh, the same could be said in many ways about uh, Oregon State's run. I don't think anybody saw that coming. I, I, look, I think you know, to me like the one play that will forever be in my mind is that Jalen Suggs three point half court shot, you know, to, to, to win the game. And at that moment, and by the way, Mark wrote a great Mark's moment about this. But at that moment, you felt like, OK, this is a team of historic destiny. You know, they, they, they're undefeated. They're going to do what Indiana did, you know, in 1976. They're going to they're gonna go through and win it all undefeated. And that just felt like that, I mean, that one shining moment. And as it turned out, and as Mark really eloquently described in his blog, you know, there's a number of those uh, type of things throughout sports history where the game before the championship game is really the most memorable and epic, and then the team that won in such a memorable way ends up losing in kind of a you know nondescript way, which you know it is what it is. But I think I think most people will remember that moment maybe more than any other in the tournament. And for me, then kind of the next part of you know these superlatives is what's the best game to me. That's what that that is. It's, it's it's that UCLA uh, Gonzaga game. But how about for you? What what would you
1: deem to be the best game of the journey? I would probably have to side with, yeah, same thing. UCLA Gonzaga all around was the best game. Actually my second favorite game also include UCLA. And that was the um, the sweet 16 game against Alabama. So they got yeah. both of them. They, they get to be, they get two yeah. awards this year. Um, but you I do one, want to say also one. kind of yeah, yeah I do want to say also one other thing as a native Texan mm-hmm. um I am familiar with Baylor and for those that don't Scott Drew he was in his 18th year this was his 18th year as the coach at Baylor for those who don't know Baylor's basketball program was a complete mess when Scott mm-hmm. Drew got there there was a one player ended up killing another player. It was, it was a mess to the point they thought about just getting rid of the basketball program in general. They showed Scott Drew's press conference when he got there. He said, I am not here just to, you know, have just to help redeem. We're here to win tournament games. When he said that back in 03, people thought he was a nut. Because you're like, How in the world are you gonna get in it? And the first few years were really rough, but he stayed the course. So So yeah, best game was UCLA Gonzaga. But I do think that underneath all that, if we could have like a secondary award of maybe best story, I think that that story of Scott Drew and the commitment he had to Baylor and the fact that 18 years later, they were able to actually come through fruition and, and break through and win this championship. I think that's such an awesome story. Um, from where he came, where he came into that program and to bring them to what he brought them to. I think that's such an awesome story um, that that championship game definitely capped off.
0: Absolutely. Good word. All right, so give me, uh, we're gonna wrap it up here, but uh, who, who is the best player of the tournament and who's your early favorite for
1: 2022? I'm tempted to go with Suggs, but like I said, I mean the player that I think absolutely impressed me the most would have to be Juzang um, just Mm -hmm. because, like I said, I did not see that throughout the season, so then that kind of leads me to the next point of UCLA, keep in mind, only had one senior on the team, and that one Mm -hmm. senior was banged up the most of the year, Mm -hmm. and we'll talk about kind of next, and we'll talk about kind of the transfer portal and the extra year of eligibility here in a little bit, but UCLA, if Juzang, we don't know what his decision is going to be if he decides to go or stay. But if he decides to come back, I look at UCLA and I'm thinking, hold on a second. This is a team that literally grew up right before our very eyes, Mm -hmm. had this remarkable run. Mm -hmm. This year was about, you know, man, what a beautiful Cinderella story. Next year, they're looking at like, wait a minute, hold on a second. We're going to be arguably the most experienced team Mm -hmm. that has a track record of success Mm -hmm. now. Why can't we win it all? So UCLA is one team. And then another team that I think, I don't know if they're there in like a national radar team, um, the Syracuse Orange. And I will admit this would be more of like a cute story. But next year, Jim, so Jim Beheim's son, Buddy Beheim, is on the team. And next year is his senior year. Yep. Next year, the college basketball national championship and Final Four is going to be in New Orleans. Why is that significant? The last time... well, the last time, Jim Boeheim's only championship came in 2003 in New Orleans with the freshman phenom known as Carmelo Anthony. So what I hope to see, I don't know if it's actually going to happen, but I think it'd be an awesome story if now to get his second championship in the same place his son, who would have been maybe like four at the time, could help bring him his second championship in New Orleans. I think that'd be an awesome Mm. story. Uh, But if I had to pick a pick, it's probably going to be UCLA right now.
0: (laughs) I love it. Yeah, that is an awesome story, and uh, you know, so you mentioned, you mentioned the transfer portal. Uh, I've just found this to be fascinating, uh, and I don't, I, I can't figure out where I stand on this. Although I, I think probably I'm not a fan of the transfer portal. But as you mentioned, this is a really unique year because the NCAA has granted an additional year of eligibility because of COVID nineteen. So every football player, every basketball player, uh, basically they were able to play this year without burning any eligibility in their, in their career. So what that has done uh, as a kind of a corollary to this opening up of the transfer portal, you know, typically the way that it used to work for years and years and years was if you transferred from one school to the next, you had to sit out a year and lose a year of eligibility. Now they're getting an extra year of eligibility and they're not being asked to sit out. They're basically most, almost every single student is getting granted a waiver to be able to play right away in whatever school they they want to, to attend. Mix that with the, the, you know, the proclivity of social media and how that influences young people. And what we've seen is a massive turnover where we currently have uh, somewhere around 1500 students, uh, student athletes in the transfer portal for college football and 1400 student athletes in the transfer portal for college basketball. That's, Yeah, I mean, you you know, there was a game that we used to play when I was in youth group called fruit basket turnover. (laughs) And, you know, when they when they said fruit basket turnover, that meant everybody got up out of their chair and scrambled like mad to find another uh, empty chair. And the last kid to to find a chair was was the one that was left standing and and was out. Um, What's going to happen with all this? 1,500 kids transferring in and out, where are they going to end up? And is this going to be a total disaster?
1: You know, I'm with you, Warren, in that I'm kind of, I see both sides of it in that, like, on one hand, it's just, it's chaos. It's Mm -hmm. like, it really is almost like a more chaotic version of free agency. Well, but yeah, if it's still yeah. a free agency, I have a cap space, you know? But in this one, right. hey, I could just, you know, um, you guys know each other? You guys like each other? Hey, come on into mine. So it's, in one sense, it's a lot of chaos. Now, obviously, you mentioned the part of kind of what caused this initially was with like last year when the tournament got canceled. Okay, obviously, unforeseen mm-hmm. circumstance. So that's one thing. So that's where I'm kind of torn because on one end, like, players that were that they did miss essentially that season, I do feel bad for them. So I think that in that aspect, it's nice. Um, But then I see a lot of guys that are just like, eh, I don't like it here, I'm gonna go. And that's where it's what you're talking about, the immediate transfer. That's where I wonder, okay, now how is that? Now, it's really interesting though, to answer the question of how do I think it's gonna turn out? If you notice, um, I'll just use college basketball again for the example. If you've noticed the last few years, the national championship teams have actually by and large been teams that have veteran leadership of guys that have been there for a cohesion of time. Baylor, the majority of their guys were of their leaders were juniors and seniors. Two years before that, Virginia had a team that was veteran-led juniors and seniors. Year before that, juniors and seniors, Villanova had two championships in three years. And then 2017, that North Carolina team that won was the North Carolina team I talked about earlier that had gotten to the championship and lost to the buzzer beater. So we've seen, in I think in recent years, we've actually seen that if you can keep your team together and they build cohesion in the long haul, that's better. Mm-hmm. I personally don't know if it's gonna be as effective to just do a mix and match thing and say, well, all these guys have experience, so I'm just gonna mix and match. Um, I think in some ways it's a little bit – I guess you could say it's an expedited way to get to a championship or to build a team for a year. But I think that just from what we've seen in recent years, I don't know necessarily if building up a bunch of transfers is really going to be the way to go. In football, it's also kind of the same in that, like, I don't know if necessarily being able to just kind of mix and match is going to really be able to – in the short term, yeah, it might be able to work. Um, And then the other thing, the other side is, you know, if I am committed to, uh, let's just say I'm committed to UNC Wilmington, right, and I'm playing Mm -hmm. there, well, I just heard there's an opening over there at North Carolina. Okay, I can just go right on over. Because, I mean, let's be honest, if you're going to choose, if you have a choice between North Carolina and UNC Wilmington, (laughs) what are you going to pick, you know? So that's kind of one of the other things that I think on the other side could be problematic is – we're kind of just, will this immediately benefit just the big time schools that have the, that have the resources and the, and the, and the capabilities, um, will it just benefit them? And so I wonder if that's gonna be what we see as well. Yeah, yeah
0: you know, I mean, I think uh, it, it is gonna be, it's, it's, you know, we've talked about how recruiting is the lifeblood of college football. You know, if you can't recruit, you can't compete. Now, what we have now is you may recruit a top 10 class, and two years later, half of those guys are no longer on the roster. You know, so take, for example, let's, you know, it's the dog and duck show. Look at the, the Ducks. Looking at their transfer portal in college football this year, they have 11 players who have left the team to go into the transfer portal, including their starting quarterback from last year, Tyler Shuck. Now some people might say, well, you know, we didn't need some of those guys. Tyler wasn't going to be a starter next season, but still, you're talking about 11 guys that were on the roster providing depth, perhaps starting that are no longer on the team. As of today, they haven't replaced those guys with anybody else in the transfer portal. University of Washington, they've had nine guys transfer out, they have had uh, a few guys transfer in, they've got, let me count, one, two, three, four, they've got four, no, five guys transferred in, so they essentially, they have a net loss of four in terms of total roster, but uh, yeah, this is going to be a game changer for a lot of programs, where You know, they might be able to go out and fill holes or they may end up finding themselves, you know, they, they end the season going, Hey, look, we're going to be really good next year. We've got X number of returning starters, but by the time the fall rolls around six or seven of those guys are playing for someone else. So this is going to be, I think, a really um, interesting dynamic to see how this plays out. And the same is true in the, in the basketball realm as well. I mean, the Husky basketball team, which had one of its worst seasons in recorded history um, this past season, is in serious peril. I mean, it's it's like a total wipeout. Um, they've lost one, two, three, four, five, six players from last year's roster, um, with only one new player coming in from Arizona. So this is this is going to be a completely different team next year and you might say well you know they did they weren't very good maybe that's a good thing but you know in addition to recruiting high school players now coaches are really going to have to focus on recruiting out of the transfer portal to make up for the losses of the, the players that you know were disgruntled don't like the system don't feel like they're getting enough playing time whatever that is, you know, it's hard to imagine how this is going to end up being good for college football or college basketball.
1: And I think the point that you hit, because like like you said, like if someone goes, well, they weren't really that good, what's the problem? You got to think big picture long term. If I'm a high schooler or a transfer for that matter, yeah. if I keep seeing at this particular program, five, six players seem to keep transferring. Well, is that not going to cause a red flag in my eyes when I'm looking and picking schools? So it's not just as simple as the immediate replacing. You have to think big picture. Now, if I notice that a place keeps having a lot of turnover happening at, well, that's going to cause me some concerns if I'm picking places here. So that's, that's the other, I think, the bigger picture thing. I don't think sometimes people notice that. I think that's, that, like you said, that is a very crucial piece then. Because um, for all intents purposes, there might not be anything wrong with that program, but it's the perception. Yeah. If I perceive yeah. that there is a problem, then it's going to kill the recruiting on both ends, whether it's with trans- transfers or whether it's with high schools.
0: Yeah. You know, I think at the end of the day, um, savvy coaches. Will find a way to take advantage of this savvy players will find a way to benefit from this, but I wonder how many players of these 1500 football 1400 basketball are going to find themselves left out in the cold. In a few months when all the dust settles and uh, coaches look at their tape and say nah, you know uh, you might have been good coming out of high school, but. I don't think I want to take a risk on you. And how many football teams are going to be really hurting? Our basketball team is going to be really hurting because, you know, their rosters have been completely, you know, stripped bare because of this, this transfer portal, you know, phenomenon. So I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of it, but it's something that we will continue to monitor. I think we'll continue to talk about, Uh, because it's unlike anything we've seen in, you know, college football and basketball, and we won't even get into this now, but when you begin to think about this phenomenon of a transfer portal and what they're talking about doing with the name, image, and likeness in the years ahead, what's going to stop a player who's, you know, let's take a kid who's, starring at oral roberts university and he finds out oh i could go to ucla and get paid a hundred grand for my name image and likeness in california boom i'm gone you know and so all of a sudden you know the the equity of of college basketball which is already you know kind of out of whack is going to become even more extreme based on you know where can I cash in while in college? You know, and and not even have to sit out of
1: year. Just boom, I'm I'm in. Yeah, I think mean, it will happen the same in football too. I think it will happen either one football. of those. Yeah.
0: I mean USC, I think, is going to be primed for that. They're you know they're they're in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> uh, obviously Alabama's going to make a way to 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 fill some pockets, but this is this is a, a crazy season. So, all right. We've got Zach. We've got about ten minutes left, so we'll talk just for a few minutes about the NFL offseason. A um, couple of highlights: the the NFL has officially approved adding a seventeenth game to the season, reducing the number of preseason uh, games to three. Is this a good move for the NFL
1: and for for players and fans? I think it can, I think it could be a good move, but I don't think it was a necessary move because I think in one sense, it's nice because you are gonna now get more interconference games like next year, we're gonna get to see Green Bay play Kansas City. I'm okay with that. Rogers and Mahomes, I'm fine with, you know. So on yeah. that aspect, yeah, as a fan, that's awesome. Yeah. But on the other side, it's like, I don't know if you wanna keep stretching it out more. You know, um, I think what helps the NFL so much is the scarcity of it. You know, in basketball, there's 82 games. In baseball, there's 180 games. In football, there's only seven. Well, now there's 17 games. Um, So could it be good, I think, in terms of giving a few more cooler matchups in the season? Yeah, but I don't think it's necessary. And I definitely don't want us to start trying to expand it more, uh, more and more. Yeah, you know, I think the, the biggest concern
0: is injuries you know, when, when you add that 17th game, because let's face it, guys aren't getting hurt in preseason games because they're not playing starters, not playing in these preseason games, (laughs) which is the whole reason why we don't want to see more preseason games, but they are playing in regular season games. How many injuries will be added, you know, at before the playoffs because of that 17th game, you know, I, Uh, To be honest, I haven't done a lot of research on this particular subject, but it seems to me, I wonder, Zach, and maybe you might be able to to comment on this, but how much of this was motivated by the fact that uh, this is going to help bump up the the salary caps for the, the teams moving ahead, recognizing that all of the salary caps have dropped over this free agent season, because of the, the lack of fans and the reduced income from COVID nineteen, would the seventeenth game have been added if it weren't for COVID nineteen and the impact on the
1: salary caps? Um, I think that definitely the added revenue does play a part. I don't know how I, like I, said, I don't know how big of a part, but I definitely think that you're onto something to say that okay, add another game, again, for the player's perspective, that's another week of revenue I'm going to get. So in that aspect, you know, hey, no no harm, no foul in there. Um, so, but yeah. That's well, it's, it's a it's a, it's a two-sided coin though, because you've got
0: added income, but also added risk of injury. And the And, the, why, toll.
1: and the weirdest thing about it is that this was collectively bargained. the mm-hmm. players agreed to this so yeah. it's like so i hear like you know they make the decision alvin kamara comes out and says this is dumb well i'm sorry mr kamara y'all made the decision y- y'all <laughs> and it was laid out to y'all just like you said yeah. okay yes you're gonna get an increase in salary cap but then at the same time don't come and complain and say well now they don't care about our players safety. well y'all agree to it so it's like you know <laughs> You know, it's one of those things that that's the that's the part that, again, as a fan, it's like, well, I mean, if y'all voted on this, you know, at at, at my bookstore, we don't have that. But if they said, hey, like, we're going to increase, you know, your salary, but now you're going to have to now work two departments in one day. If we as the employees decide, yeah, we're going to do that, we can't just complain and say, well, now I got to do textbooks and I got to do general merchandise. Well, we agreed to that. So, you know. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think after
0: the dust settles, you know, when we see fans return to the stadiums, when we see the money go back up, it will be interesting if at some point there's some kind of an expression of regret that they made this decision (laughs) to add the 17th game, because I really think this is about money. This is about the players wanting more money and seeing their money go down this offseason. I think had a big, a big impact on that. All right. So talking about free agents, you know, this is not the, this was not the, the off season to be a, a unrestricted free agent. Um, all, like I mentioned, all of the salary caps have been reduced and players that were expecting a big payday are finding themselves waiting on a phone call uh, from, from NFL teams. Few uh, few players of, of note that, that uh, uh, are still yet to be signed. Uh, Richard Sherman, um, who uh, is coming off of I would say a, a decent season uh, with with uh, San Francisco, but um, he's he's still waiting on that that deal. I think he's going to find himself to be disappointed. Antonio Brown. And uh, how about the Buccaneers reloading for another Super Bowl run? They've re-signed Fournette. They've re-signed Jones. And then they went out and they got Giovanni Bernard from the Cincinnati Bengals, uh, who I love as a player. I think he's, he's always been a great fill-in. He's a great pass catcher. Seems like a guy that will fit in really well with a Tom Brady system. They got Gronk, Barrett, Godwin back.
1: What are your thoughts about this uh, this free agent signing period? Well, yeah, like you said, Tampa Bay. We we've, we've always we were talking about how one of the difficulties in being able to repeat as champions is that inevitably somebody wants their bigger piece of the pie. That's just that's just how it works usually. But in Tampa Bay's case, they amazingly were able to keep a good chunk of this team together. Um, so I think that they definitely have a very legitimate shot at repeating his Super Bowl chance because of that. Um, Two names I think are very interesting that are still on the market. You mentioned Richard Sherman. I think that a good chunk of the concern with him now is he is getting up there in age. He has had injuries. I don't think it's necessarily his, we'll just say spirited personality (laughs) um, that he has, but I think that's, it's more more to deal with, okay, We're not getting the Legion of Boom Richard Sherman. But now I would also say, though, I still think as a veteran, uh, just Mm -hmm. based on just his intellect of the game alone, I would still want to have him. But to your point, if he's trying to get the big payday, I don't think that's going to happen. And the other name, and another name you're familiar with, I think that he's actually now looking like he might be signing with Cleveland, though, is Jadavion Clowney. And Jadavion Clowney has always been someone that is just, he's, always intrigued me because if you just Mm -hmm. look at this man he is a physical specimen Mm -hmm. but i don't know how about if you feel this way but since he entered the league i just don't feel like given what we thought he was going to be when he was drafted number one i just don't feel like i have ever really seen that guy consistently i've seen flashes of him yeah but I don't – I feel like sometimes we go back to that hit when he did in, in that bowl game against Michigan we popped that dude's helmet off. Yeah. We thought we were going to get that. And I just don't feel – now, some of it is injuries, obviously, but mm-hmm. I just don't – and it's something I didn't even know. He's only 28. So he's not yeah. even – but he's he's an older 28 yeah. because of injuries. Right, so right. So he's another one of those guys that – I like that they signed him, but I just wonder, okay – Am I ever going to really get to see the Jadavion Clowney we thought we were going to get? Because, like I said, up till now, I just have to don't feel like we've seen that yet.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, Jadavion Clowney, he's he's one of those guys that he was the best player in high school football. You know, when he when he you know committed to go to the University of South Carolina, he was the best player in college football when he was drafted by the Texans so he had all of the expectations of being you know the next Lawrence Taylor you know the next Reggie White and clearly he has not lived up to those expectations then he was paired next to JJ Watt who was uh, a walk-on at Wisconsin who ended up becoming for at least a handful of years the most or one of the most dominant defensive football players in in in, in the NFL. So I think that there was a, a you know, the, it was the expectations and comparison that I think really crushed uh, Clowney. If he had been a late first-round draft pick, I think people would look at his career and go, yeah, he was good.
1: You know, he, he did what so he's he did. has been three straight Pro Bowls, did. if I'm not mistaken.
0: Right, but but, you know, because of that expectation, that's, but the thing is, when you get to the NFL, you're not going to be so head and shoulders above everyone else that you can just dominate on pure size, talent, speed alone. You've got to have that competitive edge, and it doesn't seem like that's in in Clowney's mental, emotional makeup. He's he's a talented guy, but. He's not a guy that I think is just a,
1: a nasty dog like Lawrence Taylor was, you know. I think that is one hundred percent accurate. That's that thing that sums it up. It's like if he he really is, he should be what we see with Aaron Donald and Khalil Mack and Bob Miller and those guys. That should be Jadavon because I think just purely on talent, I think he's talented, more talented than all those guys just based on talent but the difference between those guys and him just like you mentioned those guys are dogs yeah. they are they are yeah. out there out there to to earn their keep Aaron Donald especially he got paid and then said okay now that you've given me my money i'm going to validate and validate that for you and all he did was go out there and become defensive player of the year again so like but that's i think like you said like and that's the tricky thing like how do i get that out of this guy you know maybe coming to cleveland you know, I mean, he was on the other side of J.J. Watt, and now he's going to be the other side um Miles Garrett, so it's like, you had J.J. Watt, who was, like you said, a former defensive player of the year. If you can't get double-digit sacks, when more likely, than not, people are going to be double-teaming Watt, it's like, come on, dude, like, that that's the yeah. thing. It's like, yeah. it comes down to, do you really want to be that guy? And that's, right. like you said, I don't know if he is, if he has that or not, so maybe yeah. you can. And you can't coach so. oh. him. You so. cannot coach him.
0: But, yeah. So talking about guys who's, whose bodies are older than their actual age, Todd Gurley is another one that's on the free agent list. He's only 26 years old, but <laughs> he seems like he's 37. You know, he seems like uh, Frank Gore uh, in terms of like the way that, that we think about him. And, and uh, Frank Gore has been... Hobbling around on on two replaced knees for decades now. And he's still but, playing. <laughs> and still playing, still producing. Where where do you think Gurley's gonna end up? And what what you know what can he bring to a team?
1: That's yeah, Todd Groh is another one of those guys. Now it's like, like you said, he's only 26, but he but the issue with him was he came into the league with injuries. And that was yeah. And it's like we saw when he was with the Rams. When he's healthy, you could have made the argument he might have been the, considered the best running back in the game. Mm-hmm. But if I sign him, I also have to take into account I'm going to have to count for now four or five games in the year that he's probably not going to be there for. And it's yeah. like, I mean, the most important thing if I'm if I'm a GM, I gotta know I can depend on and rely on you. Mm-hmm. And when he's healthy, absolutely, I know I can depend on him. But you know, if you're if I got question your durability, that's going to be a problem. So where do I think he fit? I think he could. He would have to find a team that would, you know, that he would – I don't know if he'd be able to go to a team and be the number one dog. I just don't know because I just don't know if teams trust his health. I just don't know if teams have that. Uh, A guy that – Deshaun Jackson, he just recently got signed to the Rams, but the expectation with him is he's not going to be the number one receiver. We already know they got Cup and Woods for that. But we know he is still capable of breaking past and going past anybody on the field. He's still capable of that. So, again, Gurley, is he still capable of being able to give you some good um, production both in and outside of the backfield catching and running? I'm sure he can, but I don't know if he's if, – again, is he looking to be the number one guy? Because if he is, I just don't know if a lot of teams are going to be wanting to put that much equity into a guy who's just his durability has not been proven to be st- to be steady.
0: Yeah. No, I agree. I, I see him as a, a number two uh, platoon guy a short yardage guy, uh, a locker room guy, but he's not, I don't think he'll be a starter in the NFL ever again, oh unless of, of course an injury. So one guy that we mentioned just a little while ago, and I think this is, this maybe you know, to me the most fascinating uh, free agent pickup and that's Antonio Brown. So when Antonio Brown left the Steelers, he was the best wide receiver in the NFL, we all know his backstory, what happened, how he, how he, you know, uh, burned out at, at, uh, the Raiders and then set out for some, uh, you know, non-football reasons came back to the Buccaneers mid-season. And I think he, he showed flashes of his old self, but never really took over a game. In a way that he had when he was with the Steelers, but now wherever he ends up, he's going to have a full off season. He's going to have preseason games and a full season to get in sync with a quarterback. Could Antonio Brown really be, uh, you know, kind of the 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 game changer that maybe helps, you know, make a team a playoff contender? or even a Super Bowl champion.
1: I think, so Yeah, like you said, like he showed flashes of it, but I also think that the reason that we maybe didn't see the AB of Pittsburgh is just mainly just because of the way Tampa Bay is built. Because, I mean, in right. this situation, he's coming into a team where Mike Evans and Chris Godwin were already there. So it, was, right. it, it wasn't like, now in Pittsburgh, he was the man in Pittsburgh. Juju came on later, but he was the man in Pittsburgh. Mm. If he would stay with the Raiders, he was going to be the man with the Raiders. Went to Tampa Bay, he was not gonna be the man. It was but I think A B knew that going to Tampa Bay. Now, the question, so to answer the question of can he still be that guy, I think if he's put in a system and you ask, hey, A B, can you be that number one guy? I think he can be that guy. But here's the flip side of that.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. We know though, with that, we've seen what happens when he is the number one guy. And now if I'm a team, do I want to deal with that? Because I don't think I can finagle Tom Brady at Tampa Bay to join him. If I got both of them, it would be pretty nice. But I don't, um, because we know Tom Brady's staying in Tampa Bay. So the question I have, I would have if I'm scouting AB, if I'm a team, is, okay, do I, can you be the AB that was in Tampa Bay, that was a model citizen? Can you be that when Tom Brady's not there? That's ultimately that that's really the question because i think ability and talent wise i do think especially like you said if i give him a full off season to get in sync with our system i think he can still do that um because he's only what 31 or 32 i think mm-hmm. um so but the question i have is okay if i can i trust you to be that that guy on my team or am i going to have to worry if i don't give you 12 targets a game that you're going to flip out on everybody so that's really the question I would have if I'm as I'm assessing AB. Well, there's no
0: question whatsoever that a guy who is a model citizen and a guy that a head coach can trust with his life is another free agent, the legend, Larry Fitzgerald. Is this guy going to come back for another season? Or has he cemented uh, his Hall of Fame uh run and will uh, fade off into the sunset
1: yeah larry fitzgerald he is a so yeah he is officially a free agent i personally just do not see him putting on another uniform uh, mm-hmm. of another team so the question would just be does he want to just continue with arizona now arizona did add aj green in the off season so now they got green and hopkins and they just recently added james connor to their backfield Right. Um, and yeah. then obviously they got yeah. they, 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 well,
0: Christian, Christian Kirk was was a, a weapon for them this year yeah uh, they've got a lot of weapons on offense and I you know if I'm Larry Fitzgerald I'm looking at that and going okay I can be a contributor on this team yeah without having to carry the load yeah of uh of you know being the the number one
1: and then on the other side of the field you've got a guy I know you love, Buda Baker, and then you yeah. just got J.J. Watt and Chandler Jones coming back. Arizona, to me, they have everything to at least make the playoffs. Um, but to get to your point with Blair Fitzgerald, this is something I've always found interesting. Okay, I think pretty much everyone agrees universally. Jerry Rice, number one receiver, there's no debate there. Okay. Yeah. But it always feels like the next <laughs> tier, it's always is Randy Moss or T.O. And nothing against either one of those guys. But if you just look purely at the numbers, the second leading receptions leader is Larry Fitzgerald. Second in reception and receiving yards is Larry Fitzgerald. Larry Fitzgerald is sixth all-time in touchdowns. Fitzgerald has had more Pro Bowl appearances than T.O. and Moss. And to the point that you mentioned earlier, Larry, we, we all know receivers. We know that that can be the somewhat regarded as diva position. We get all that, but Larry Fitzgerald is a receiver who has won the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award and he was the inaugural winner of the Art Rooney Sportsmanship Award. So to, when you put all of that together, I believe you really could make the argument based on numbers and what he meant to his team and the fact that we saw when he got two quarterbacks that actually could get him in a playoff run with Warner and with Palmer, we saw what he was capable of in the playoffs. So not like he didn't deliver then too. Mm-hmm. You could make the argument. I mean, I don't know why Fitzgerald, I think maybe maybe it is just because Fitzgerald is such a non-diva. He's mm-hmm. not one of those look at me guys Maybe it's a little like T.O. and Moss get a little bit more recognized because of they were you knew T.O. Moss, you knew it and they were producing and whatnot. But I feel like if we're really assessing top receivers, I think you could legitimately make the argument Larry Fitzgerald is undoubtedly the second best receiver in NFL history behind Jerry Rice. Um, yeah, but yeah. so th- I, I would if it comes down to if, J- if Fitzgerald wants to play again. I'm sure him and Arizona, they will figure out a way to make it happen. Because like I said, I just don't see him going anywhere else. Um, It just comes down to, you know, how much does he want to do it anymore? I think that's what it comes down. If I'm Arizona and Larry's like, I want to keep playing, I'm signing him. If I was Arizona. (laughs) Absolutely. You you (laughs)
0: will not go wrong having Fitzgerald in your locker room, especially, you know, uh, working with a guy like Kyler Murray, working with those younger receivers. I mean, that's just pure gold to have Fitzgerald. You keep him around as long as you possibly yeah, that's can. Yeah,
1: if he wants to yeah. stay, we're figuring it out. Whatever yeah. we need to do, we will figure out keeping him. It, so that's why I think it just comes down to, you know, whereas with Breeze, I think it maybe was a little more just his body yeah. um, was breaking down. Fitzgerald, yes, he's obviously not producing at the level he was in his elite years. But again, I don't think Arizona needs him to do that. I think really if he's there, it's more because of what you're saying. Yeah. He is that guy you absolutely want in your locker room because you never have to worry about him. Mm-hmm. You know he's going to be a leader. You know he's going to help the young guys out. You, you know all of that. Um, and that's, again, like you notice, like a guy like Fitzgerald and <laughs> another guy who kind of is somewhat in that same mold that has been able to defy all times of logic. It's sort of like Ryan Fitzpatrick. The reason Fitzpatrick has stayed on so long is because he is a guy who's not a headache. And if mm-hmm. you can avoid being a headache. And he produces as well in ways, different ways. But like, yeah, those are the kind of guys they are able to prolong their career because, right. yeah, it's nice if you, if you have ability. Yeah, that's great. But can you also be the professional that we need? And Fitzgerald has been, I mean, as top notch a professional as you could possibly get. I don't think I've ever seen a player lead the league in class and production. So it's <laughs> not like he just stays along because he's a nice guy. No, he also produces as well. So if he decides to hang it up, I think in 5 yeah. years, well, you know Yeah, I said 5 years.
0: <laughs> no doubt about it. He's a he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. That's without debate you know, kind of like you said, there's a clear number one. I mean, in my opinion, Jerry Rice is the greatest football player of all time. You know, not just position as wide receiver, the greatest football player of all time. So you're not going to, you know, I mean, I don't think anybody's going to eclipse Jerry Rice. But at that number two, if you're saying that you're comparing him to, to, to Moss and Owens, those are the guys in that second tier. In my opinion he's definitely superior to those guys not just because of the 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 you know, his character and persona but but really what he did accomplish and for the length of time that he did it and without any real hiccups along the way i mean you know you look at moss and he had spectacular seasons followed by a couple of duds you know followed by more spectacular yeah. whereas i mean Larry has really been just the perfect Belker. You know, I mean, he, he had his prime and obviously he's slowly trickled down, but I mean, he's recreated himself multiple times in his career to keep being productive as a wide receiver. And so I, I give him all the credit and uh, I wish him nothing but the best. And I hope he'll come back and just uh, keep suiting up for as long as he wants to because he's he's a joy to, to see out on the field and when you see the way that opposing players respect him and interact with him that tells you all you need to know well hey exactly, this has yeah. been a good yeah, episode
1: sound,
0: uh zach thanks so much for joining us um we'll, we'll continue to, to to pump out uh great content so uh stay with us if you like the show Please like it, subscribe to it, follow it, rate it, review it on uh, YouTube, Apple uh, podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We'll look forward to having Mark back. But Zach, it won't be long before we get you back on again to continue talking about NFL and uh, lots of other stuff in the day's head. So thank you so much for joining us.